Thank you for listening to the Sharon Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about the church, please visit us at SharonChurch.com. Now we hope you learn from and enjoy today's message. So this morning, as we step in uh, to this passage, I want to remind us of that, or just root ourselves in the truth that these Beatitudes are all building, and it begins with, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who are spiritually bankrupt, who feel like they have nothing to offer. Blessed are those who mourn, who grieve over the state of their sin and their own hearts and the state of the world. Blessed are the meek, those who, although they can, they don't who have their power under control, who don't consider themselves as needing to feel important by asserting uh, their, pa- their power or intelligence. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, who desire for things to be made right in the world again. Blessed are the merciful, those who extend mercy to others, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are those who have been made pure through the refining fire of life circumstances and judgment. For they shall actually see God for who he is. And this morning, blessed are the peacemakers. We can't be peacemakers without first being poor in spirit and mourning and grieving and hungering and thirsting. All that builds up to here. And if I'm being honest, today is actually the beginning of a new mini three-week series. These last three all go together. From being the peacemakers into being persecuted and then slandered, it all fits in together. So I want you to remember that as we walk through it this morning. There'll be some lingering questions afterwards that I think will be resolved as we move forward. But to put all this in context, remember Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17 said that before, from that time on, from the time that John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus began to preach, saying, and here's his message, repent, turn, change your mind, change your idea, change your behavior, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So he makes a bold declaration that from this point forward, Jesus has initiated a new kingdom. There's a second option now. There's a new kingdom because the new king is here. It's no longer just you got to adapt to the kingdom of the world. There's a new kingdom in play. And so Jesus says, repent, move away from the kingdom of the world, the ways of that kingdom. Move away uh, from the commands and edicts of that kingdom and now sit under a new king in this new kingdom. And we see it no more prevalent than we see it, I think, here in this beatitude. Blessed are the peacemakers. At this time, uh, Rome has occupied everything. Like the Roman Empire is on the move. And they're taking countries and people and they're just building and expanding this empire that we call the Roman Empire. And at this point in history, the very place that Jesus finds himself, this region of Galilee, has been overtaken by the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire is so good at conquering you and then making you feel like it was your idea they conquered you. This is what they do. They conquer you and then somehow they somehow manipulate you into thinking, this was a great idea. I'm really glad Rome came in. Look at all the things that we've gotten. So at this point in time, what's happening uh, since about 30 years before Jesus was born and again into another 150 or so years after Jesus would come, is what's called the Pax Romana. And it's a time of Roman peace in the world. There's very little conflict as far as wars go. Uh, Rome had a real problem with the succession of power. And for these 200 years or so, it's actually been pretty good. They've handed down power pretty well. Uh, there's, again, there's peace in the world, not a whole lot of conflict. And on top of that, things seem to be flourishing. 
uh, the Romans have devised a way to create roads. They've actually created cement. And they've created ways to build roads that can sustain the chariots and the horses and, uh, and all those things. They've created aqueducts and ways that they move water from places that have a bunch of water into cities and towns that don't have much water. They figured out how to make water flow into places where it had never been before. Much of what we live in today in America is built on what's called the Roman road. It's built on this. It's built on their understanding and their intellect and how they created highways and byways and how they moved water. A lot of civil engineering is based on this Roman Empire idea. Great things are happening during the Roman Empire. I feel like Henry County could learn a bit from the Roman Empire and how they do roads, but that's a different sermon. So this is all happening. Now, also at the same time, the arts are flourishing. Like we're getting playwrights and we're getting books and music like have never been seen in the world before. On top of that, education is flourishing. There are historians who are coming to the surface who, for the very first time, are keeping track of not just what is happening, but why it's happening in the world. The Roman uh, historian named Tacitus rises at this point and writes a number of encyclopedic kind of books about the history of the Roman Empire from the middle of this time. It's just brilliant, the things that are happening here. It seems on the surface... Like there is great peace that's happening. But at the very same time, underneath that idea of peace comes this Jesus into the world, this Messiah. And in his epic sermon to begin his earthly ministry, he says, blessed are the peacemakers, those who make peace. And the hearers of this sermon those who are broken and destitute have been kicked to the curbs, right? The sick, the beggars, the epileptics, the demon-possessed, they're all hearing this. Like, yeah, we've, we've heard this before. We know what peacemakers are like. We've had peacemakers come with armor into our towns. We know what they look like. We know what these peacemakers are like. Well, here's how Rome tried to create peace. It's another way of the kingdom of the world. The world tries to make peace through power. It's how the world tries to bring peace, through power. And so while it seemed peaceful during these 200 years of the Pax Romana, the slogan went around was, do as Rome demands and all will be peaceful. If you do what I say, if you do what the emperor says, you do what Caesar says, everything will be peaceful. All he asks is that you say Caesar is Lord and then there will be peace. The world tries to make peace through power. Some of our homes live in this very same way. If mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. You make peace through power. Some of that's persuasion through force. And some of that's emotional manipulation. You create peace through power. This is one way the world tries to bring peace through power and strength and might or persuasion. Sometimes it's, this, it's pressure. It's passive aggressive pressure. But the world tries to bring peace through power. For most of the developed world, this is how we find peace. We find peace through power. But... Before you think I'm a pacifist, I'm going to flip the script here a bit and also say this. The world also tries to make peace through passivity. The flip side of that is just don't rock the boat, right? Don't rock the boat. Don't cause any problems and we will find peace. Husbands, you live your life this way most of the time at your home. You think it's peaceful in your house because you don't say the things that are on your heart to say. You think you maintain peace through passivity. Adam in the garden did the very same thing. He saw his wife walking into sin and he thought, well, I better just let her be to keep the peace. That's not peace. 
You don't find peace neither through power nor through passivity. What Jesus is saying here, this beatitude, is not about enacting and enforcing your power to create peace any more than it's a passive acceptance of things simply because you're afraid of what would happen if you engage. Neither one of those is what Jesus is saying here. He's speaking of the making of peace even when it requires struggle. So if I were to guess, I would think just knowing our church and knowing the heart of our church, the majority of us are not power peace people, we're passive peace people. We think it'd be better just not to say anything, just to keep it going, just keep, keep the ball rolling, just keep everything moving forward. So I want to deal with some of that here this morning. The, the parable, I'm sorry, the beatitude is blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. So now we have to ask the question, what is peace? What is it that we're after? If we're, if we're called to make peace, what is it that we're actually making? Well, first I would say peace is more than just the absence of conflict. The Pax Romana, in the Roman peace, they had the absence of conflict. They had that. Meredith and I are doing a number of premarital counselings right now. As, um, I guess our young marriage classroom is just going to keep growing and growing and growing. It's, that's great. It's wonderful. But one thing that we always talk through these couples about is, is fighting. And we're not teaching them to not fight. We're teaching them how do you fight fairly? How, how do we do this? And one of the scariest things is when you sit before a couple and you say, hey, what does fighting look like? And they say, oh, well, we don't fight. So you're either lying or you've gotten real passive and you have no idea what a relationship actually looks like. Jesus says here, the peacemakers, not just absence of conflict or absence of war, there's something else here. The Greek word is arene, but it's actually uh, the Hebrew word translated into the Greek is the word shalom. So for every Jewish hearer of this sermon, they hear the word shalom. And shalom doesn't just mean the absence of conflict. Shalom means everything is as it should be. Shalom means the highest good. It's a greeting they would use. Shalom, meaning, hey, I, I wish the greatest good for you. So to make peace is not just to do away with conflict or do away with war. It's actually bringing about the highest good. It's working for the highest good. That's what peacemaking is. And contextually, this word then actually refers to relationships. The word that we would use is reconciling. Blessed are those who reconcile. Changes things, doesn't it? Because I say peacemakers, you're like, yeah, I do that. Like, I'm in the South, that's what I do. Unless they come from my guns, and then I don't make peace anymore. But when I say reconciling, we've got an issue now, don't we? You got an issue? Because now, immediately, we exception loophole people, jump to even that person. I have to reconcile with that person, with that ex-spouse, with that father, with that boss. Reconcile. Jesus is saying, blessed are those who reconcile. What does it mean to reconcile? It means to bring together two parties whose relationship has been broken. So in some ways, that means it's up to us to reconcile our own relationships. But even a step further, it's blessed are those who step in between two other people and bring them back together. I don't know if you're paying attention in our world, but there aren't a whole lot of people like that. There aren't a whole lot of people who actually try to bridge the gap and bring people together. We like to take sides. We like to choose a side, and then we fight from that perspective. And Jesus is saying, hey, the kingdom of heaven is made up of reconcilers. 
people who bridge the gap, who bring together two distinct parties. This is what uh, the Jewish rabbis would have understood by this phrase of peacemaker. I'm going to read a long quote for you. It'll be up on the screen, but I think we need to hear all of it uh, just for us to understand, I think, give us some context of it. William Barclay is a theologian, uh, a pastor uh, from a number of years ago, but here's, here's what he says about this passage. He says, there are people who are always storm centers of trouble. You know anybody like that? And bitterness and strife, wherever they are, they are either involved in quarrels themselves or the cause of quarrels between others. They are troublemakers. There are people like that in almost every society and every church. And such people are doing the devil's own work. Just think through this for a second. Barclay is saying in every society... Instead of being peacemakers, there are people who are troublemakers. They are the epicenter of the storm. And while they uh, may not be involved in the quarrels, they're really good at causing quarrels and then stepping out. The same way that a tornado ravages homes and then makes its way out, leaving destruction behind it. Barclay is saying there are a lot of people who instead of being peacemakers are troublemakers. And then he says they're doing the devil's work. They're doing the work of the enemy. On the other hand, he says, thank God. There are people in whose presence bitterness cannot live, people who bridge the gulfs and heal the breaches and sweeten the bitterness. Such people are doing a godlike work, for it is the great purpose of God to bring peace between men and himself, between man and man. And then watch this. The man who divides is doing the devil's work. The man who unites is doing God's work. So yes, the world is built on division. Social media, news media, it's all built on strife and division. Have you noticed that? The only reason they exist is because there's anger and bitterness and strife. You don't turn on Fox News or CNN and there's a whole 60 minutes about how great things are. That never happens. It's always about strife and bitterness and division. And the hosts of the shows... Uh, the ones who are verified on Twitter, those who have the most followers on social media, they aren't the ones promoting peace. They're the ones promoting hostility because it creates something in us that we want to be a part of. And Barclay is saying, do you understand? That's the devil's work. Jesus uses the phrase for the Pharisees and those who are stirring up dissension. And he says, you are of your father, the devil. On the flip side is the man who unites is doing God's work. So while in the world that's possible, Barclay even says, no, no, Do you understand that in the church this happens? Like in the church, there are people who are working consciously or subconsciously to create division within the church. Create division, whether it's theologically or sociologically, but they're looking for ways to create division. And Barclay says, listen, when the kingdom of heaven came, you've got two options and only two. There's not a third. You are either working for the devil or you're working for God himself. Those are your options. And then Barclay draws the line and says, you want to know how you know which one you are? If you're seeking division, you love chaos. Like, you love the drama. Listen to me, middle school, high school girls. You love the drama. Seriously, you need to hear me. This is the devil's work. But those who quench drama, who squash it, they're doing the work of God. And I'd love to sit here and say, oh, but the church, I mean, we are shining. We're really shining in the world. 
the church is just so different from the world. Have you, we're not. Of all the people in the world, it seems as though it's the Christians who are the ones causing trouble, not the ones being the peacemakers. But here's where we have to pay attention. If this is a reconciling of relationships, this is why it's so important that this kind of peace, this reconciling peace, is not brought about through power. Parents, you understand this precisely. Because in that moment that your kids are going at each other and one comes crying to you, and then you call the other one to you and you say, you go tell your sister you were sorry. Does that go well? Does that brother know that he's actually apologizing? He's seeking peace for his sister? No, because of your power, you think you are bringing peace, but you can't reconcile through power. You can't go to a counselor when you're in marriage problems and the counselor say, you guys figure this out right now. That's not how it works. You don't reconcile through power. You can't force relational reconciliation. But on the flip side, you can't find relational reconciliation through passivity. That's not how you reconcile relationships, through passivity. So show of hands, how many of you, you go to a restaurant and they get your order wrong. How many of you say something to get your order fixed? How many of you would do that? Okay. And how many of you are like, I would never. There's no way I would ever do that ever again. Yeah. Okay, let's shift it a bit. What if it's not a restaurant? What if it's Chick-fil-A? How many of you, Chick-fil-A gets your order wrong, you're in the drive-thru, and they get your order wrong. How many of you are turning back around to get the order fixed? How many of you are doing that? Okay, and how many of you are not because they're Christians and you never would do that? Okay, now in marriages, I think there's one or the other usually, right? There are the, there's the spouse who's like, I'm gonna get it right no matter what. Then there's a spouse who's like, I don't really care. It's fine, it's fine. I'll eat the cauliflower fake chicken thing. They didn't mean to do that. I don't know why they're doing it, but I'm gonna eat it. It's totally fine. Every, every marriage has them. Uh, in my marriage, I turn around because Meredith tells me to. That's what I do. I'm like, yes, ma'am. Let's go get those waffle fries. So let's talk about marriage for a bit. I think there are a number of us here this morning who our marriages are not thriving, but you would say there's peace in your home because you don't fight. There's not a whole lot of conflict. You just keep the peace. What happened was 20 years ago, there was a conflict you didn't deal with. And now you're going to exist for the next 60 years of your marriage because you're being passive. You haven't reconciled a thing. And so in 20 years, you'll sleep in separate bedrooms. For 20 years, you will still have a ring on your finger but no love in your heart for that person. But you'll call it peace. And I would argue with you, that's not peace. That's pretending. You're playing house. This kind of relational reconciliation can't happen through power. You can't force it. And at the very same way, you can't be passive about it either. So then what do we do? Well, if the world tries to bring peace through power and passivity, the kingdom makes peace through presence. The gift of presence. This is how the kingdom works. The kingdom gets in it. The kingdom gets the grime of the conflict all over them. This is what the kingdom does. The way of the world tries to force reconciliation, tries to make sure you pay the debts that you are owed. Or they passively say, I don't really want to rock, rock the boat. Let's just keep the peace. Let's just keep the peace. There's a difference between a peacekeeper and a peacemaker. There's a difference between being a peace lover and a peacemaker. We aren't called to love peace or to keep peace. We're called to make it to get in it. And how do I know it's the way of the kingdom? Because it's the way of the king. 
This is what our king did. Philippians chapter 2. There was conflict in the world between God and us. There was a distance between uh, us because of our sin. And Jesus didn't come in power saying, you better get it right or else. At the very same time, Jesus didn't put his feet up on the enemies like a footstool and say, ah, they'll figure it out. We'll just get through it. What did Jesus do? Well, Philippians chapter 2, he took on flesh and he came and he got in our muck and our grime. And he worked to reconcile us with God. He got it all over him. Got the, the wrath of our sin all over him. How do I know it's the way of the kingdom? It's the way of the king. It's what the king does. And a kingdom looks like the king. We see it in Colossians chapter 1. Paul, of all people, understands he tried to bring about reconciliation through power as a religious leader, and it wasn't working. Here's what he says in Colossians 1. For in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through Jesus, to reconcile, to peacemake to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace. How? By the blood of his cross. That was not passive, nor was it coercive. But it was power under control. How does Jesus bring peace? Well, he takes up his cross daily, and he gave his life. That's what the king does. And because of that, verse 21, you who were once alienated, you who were once distanced from God, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. He put on flesh, died to himself. Why? In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. What did Jesus do to make peace? Was it through the coercion of power and the sword? No, no, no. Jesus came and gave his life as a ransom for many to bridge the gap, to bring us back to relationship with God. And so while Jesus displayed that personally, Jesus displayed that in his ministry. We'll read later in our study of Matthew that Jesus calls Matthew to follow him. Matthew, by the name of Levi, is a tax collector. Uh, Matthew is a Jewish man who works for the Roman Empire. At this time, the Roman Empire is taking advantage of all the Hebrews, all the Jews, uh, because in these areas, particularly the fishing villages like Galilee, these fishermen are making a good living. And the Roman Empire has figured out, you know, how we can make a good living is by taxing the other people's good living that we might make a good living. We know something a little bit about that here. And so th that's what the Roman Empire is doing. And the way they're doing that is that they're employing Jewish men to betray their people and in their passivity realize, hey, the best way to keep the peace is just for me to go in between and just for me to be passive. I'm not going to buck the system, not going to fight against what's wrong with the Roman Empire. Instead, I will compromise and be passive on the side of the Roman government. This is Matthew. But in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus calls another few men, one of them whose name is Simon, that Matthew tells us is a zealot. Now, a zealot is called a zealot because of the dagger that he carries around to slowly and methodically kill off the Roman Empire. Zealots believe the way to peace, the way to getting things back to shalom, getting them back to the way they should be, is that we've got to do away with the Roman Empire, and we're going to do it through power. And so when Jesus calls 12 men to follow him, he intentionally brings Matthew, the tax collector, the passive one, and he brings Simon the zealot, the power-hungry one, and he says, hey, why don't you guys, let's do ministry together. How does Jesus reconcile? Well, he makes them present with each other for three and a half years to figure it out. 
is what Jesus does. This is when we talk about peacemaking and reconciliation. Yeah, he personifies it and then he uses it in his ministry. This is the ministry of peacemaking. But then look at this in Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the reconcilers. What's the blessing? Well, they'll be called the sons of God. And listen, if you don't care to be called the sons of God, then keep on not peacemaking. But this phrase is powerful. What it means is that blessed are the peacemakers because they look just like their daddy. They look like God. They act like God. They are God-like in the world. What it means for us is that peacemaking is the family business. What do Christians do? Well, we make peace. That's what we do. We reconcile. Anything outside of that is not the family business. It's not Christ-like. It's not what we actually do. Stirring up strife, running our mouths, running our fingers on social media, that's not what we do. We don't look for war. We don't look for conflict. When conflict comes around, we make peace with it. This is the family business. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. We no longer live according to the customs of the world. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if anyone is in the kingdom of heaven, he's new. He's done away with the old. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. The pursuit of peace, which we all want, through power or passivity, has been gone away with. And so now we're brand new. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled, peace made us to himself, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling, peacemaking the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. These phrases, gave us and entrusted, this is inheritance language. That's what this is. So what Paul is saying is when Jesus died and rose again and ascended into heaven, he left the business to us. He left the business behind to his kids. And I think some of us have seen the business of heaven and we're like, we can make some money off of that. Let's sell it and then make our own business. Spitting in the face of our father. No, no, I left you this family business of reconciliation. He entrusted to us. Therefore, verse 20, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, then be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. He got all the grime on him so that we might become the righteousness of God. And that's all good and great. What does it mean to make peace? Well, it means that we actually get in it. We're present. We're in the midst of the muck and the mire. And for many of us, we've actually stepped out of it. We've removed ourselves or we've thrust ourselves into it so much to make peace through power. So then the natural question is, then how do we do it? What do we do to make peace? Well, I'm going to give us three things. First, I think, is before we do any of it, we have to be at peace with God. We have to be at peace with God. You've got relationships, and I know what happens. You've got relationships already in your mind of ways that you know you need to reconcile. And listen, I tried for two weeks to make this message really complicated, and it's not because we know it. And I think I wanted to make it complicated because I didn't want to deal with the fact that I have to reconcile some things. And I'd rather uh, give all sorts of wisdom about it than actually do it. So here's the truth. You know what you need to do. 
I don't need to tell you that. I don't need to creatively explore some of that with you. You know. I know. So how do we do it? First is to be at peace with God. You cannot make peace with other people when you're at war with God. Can't do it. It's impossible to bring peace to other people while you're at war with God. So first is this. Be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to him. Find your contentment and your peace in him. In him. Find peace there. Otherwise, what happens is we become codependent. And that's a psychological term, which means you would say things like, I'm not okay if you're not okay. For many of us, you want to know why we're pursuing peace? It's because we think that will settle and satisfy something in our own hearts and minds and souls. Your marriage is falling apart and you're trying to seek peace because you want that spouse, that husband, to fill what only God can fill in your soul. You cannot seek true peace until you're at peace with God. Until you recognize, first of all, I am his and that's enough for me. Otherwise, you're manipulating your spouse, you're manipulating your boss or your coworker to try to satisfy something. First, be at peace with God. Secondly, is to be at peace with yourself. The reason why we drift towards passivity or power when it comes to reconciliation is because we're not at peace with who we are and where we are. You gotta be at peace. Be at shalom with where you are right now. And you have to understand, it's no one else's fault that you are where you are right now. Be at peace with it. This is where I am. This is what my life is like. This is what my relationships are like. This is what my financial status is like. Be at peace with yourself. Any conflict you have did not start because someone else started. It started because you don't have peace within yourself. And I don't mean for that to sound Eastern. What I mean for that to sound is biblical. James chapter 4 Verse one, James says, what causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? What if the frustration you have with your spouse isn't about your spouse, but it's about you? What if the frustration you have with your boss doesn't have to do with your boss, but it has to do with you? What if James is right? What if the very thing that's keeping you from peace is not their behavior, not their decision-making, not their leadership? What if the thing that's keeping you from peace is actually the war going on within you? And James continues, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You're like, I would never kill anyone. Well, listen, Jesus says if you're angry, it's like murder. How about that? You desire and you do not have, so you get angry. Does that feel better? You desire and you do not have, so you gossip. You desire and do not have, so you slander. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. So James is being very clear. You want to know why? You want to know why there's no peace in your home? Why there's no peace in your heart? You want to know why there's no peace in your job? You, your why. It's all within you. And you cannot pursue reconciliation with somebody else until you've first been reconciled to God and you reconcile that you are where you are. I spent a lot of my life on the passivity side of this equation. I grew up as the oldest of six. I'm the only boy, and I have five younger sisters. I learned pretty early on 
the best way to make it out alive is just to be quiet. That's the best way to make it. So I don't. Like, I don't, I didn't confront, I didn't deal with things. I didn't deal with things externally or internally. I'm really good at just sticking my head in the sand. I can put my head down and just keep moving forward. The problem is, I spend 10 years doing that and wake up one day and wonder why my marriage is where it is. It was me. It was my stuff, my wars within me. It's my desires. It was my problem. And only until I realized that was I able to then seek reconciliation, to seek peace. And then thirdly, if we're going to make peace, we're going to be reconciled. We have to live in peace with others. And here's the issue for us. Here's the problem. The problem for us, I don't think, is the first two as much as it is this one. I think we've made peace with God. I think maybe most of us have found some peace within ourselves, but now it's this. Now you gotta live like it. Now you gotta live in peace with other people. So immediately the walls go up and say, yeah, even that person? Yeah, uh uh-huh, yeah, even that person. Romans chapter 18, or 12, verse 18, Paul says, as much as it lies within you, if possible, so far as it depends upon you, Live peaceably with all. Now, the Greek language is confusing, and so that word for all in the Greek language actually means everyone. It means all is what it means. So I know, right? You've got people. You're like, well, okay, so live peaceably with all who agree with me. Got it. Live peaceably with all who see our our household budget the same way I see it. Mm. Live peaceably with all who have the same skin color as me. Live peaceably with all who vote the same way I do. Live peaceably with all who view uh, gun control and abortion the same way. No, no, no. Live peaceably with all. But the first part of that phrase, as much as it lies within you. Because here's the trick with reconciliation. It takes two. But that's not an excuse not to pursue it. As much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And James would say in James chapter 3, so what that means, first of all, is you got to tame your tongue. Live peaceably with all. So we got to watch the things that we say. we got to watch the things that we type. We've got to watch the things we say to other people about certain people. As much as it lies with you, within you, you got to live in peace with other people. As much as it lies within you. But then you're like, I mean, it doesn't feel like that big of a deal, right? Like, of all the problems in the world, as long as I can just move on and forget about it, why do I have to reconcile? It feels like a step that's just too far for me. Well, Jesus thinks it's a big deal. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, If you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you. So now he's saying, uh, if you've come into worship, right? You've come in to sing, we've started the prayer of confession and repentance, and in your mind springs forward, oh man, yeah, there's that thing. There's that brother, there's that sister, there's that mom or that dad, there's that boss, and it springs to your mind, ah, oh, there's somebody that I have something against. If there's something like that, you want Jesus to say, then you just need to keep on singing until you change your mind. If you've realized that somebody has something against you, just get out your Bible and read it more. If you realize somebody has something against you, maybe you should give an extra percent when you tithe. It'll make you feel better. What Jesus says in verse 24 is leave your gift there before the altar. First, go and be reconciled to your brother and then come back and worship. 
Think Jesus takes reconciliation seriously? Here's what he's saying. I'd rather you be reconciled to your brother than come sing me some stupid songs. I'd rather you be reconciled, you would uh, mend that relationship than you come and give an extra percent with your tithe. I'd rather you do all that than think you're going to open your Bible and get something out of it. That's what Jesus is saying. Does he take this seriously? Yes, the family business. This is what we do. In the kingdom of heaven, we reconcile. So this morning, here's the thing. If during this sermon, during the study of God's word, the Holy Spirit has convicted you towards reconciliation, don't you dare go into small group thinking you're going to remove yourself from thinking about it. You need to get on your phone and make a phone call. You need to pull somebody aside and have a conversation. You and your wife need to go out for lunch and talk about it. To keep masquerading around to think that you're going to call yourself a son or a daughter of God while you're not living like a son or a daughter of God has no business here. Because that little divisiveness within your marriage will soon turn into divisiveness within your family, then into your work, and then into our church. And God forbid, first be reconciled to your brother. Then you can come back and offer your gift. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are those who reconcile, for they shall be called the sons of God. Meredith and I have three kids and um, our oldest one, Colton, if we were to stand next to each other, you'd be like, man, he looks just like you. And I would say, maybe, until I brought Meredith's brother along, and you'd be like, oh, no, okay, he looks just like his uncle. That's who he looks like. So because we're close, because we've been around each other, you're like, oh, he looks like you, until you see something that he actually looks like. The truth is, Kaysen, our middle one, that's who looks like me. Until about my junior year of high school, I was no taller than 5'5 five, five or 5'6". Five, between my junior year and senior year of high school, I grew another five inches. And between my uh, senior year of high school and freshman year of college, I grew another two inches. I was short and I was scrawny. And I've eaten my way out of scrawny. So I've done that well. And by God's, you know, I just grew a bit. I don't have red hair like Kaysen, so it gets confusing a bit. But there is something in our family that's completely undeniable. And that's that our daughter Landry looks just like her mama. I mean, just like her. There are times we'll be sitting at home and I'll look over and they're both doing the same thing, making the same facial expression. I mean, it's uncanny what happens. We were at the craft event yesterday and we um, saw somebody we hadn't seen in a while and she was like, oh, is this your little girl? And Landry turns around and her face was like, oh, what? Like, she looks just like Meredith. I'm like, yeah, praise God she does because I don't know. And I said, you look just like your daddy. What that feels like for a little girl? I don't know what that feels like. You look like an overweight, bearded guy. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's undeniable that Landry is her mama's daughter. May it be said of us, you look just like your father. That when people see the church reconciling, because it looks so different from the world, not pursuing peace through power or passivity, but actually getting the dirt and grime on our hands, bringing relationships back together, that they would say, goodness, you look like your dad in heaven. Man, you look just like him when you do that. May that be true of us, church. 
But in Ola and in McDonough and Henry County, people see Sharon Church and they're like, oh, you look just like your father. I see reconciliation there. I see relationships being mended. I see families being brought back together. I see marriages being healed. You look just like your dad. The apple didn't fall far from the tree. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? And again, I know, like I know us. There's no way to live our lives and to come out unscathed from broken relationships. There's no way to do it. So for me to say that there are some relationships that need to be reconciled this morning, it's not a far stretch. So here's the invitation. If you call yourself a follower of Jesus and you're more a troublemaker than a peacemaker, you need to confess and repent. Because you're looking too much like the devil and not enough like your father. If you found yourself really enjoying the strife and drama, you're the one people run to to gossip with, you're not a peacemaker. And you don't look like Jesus. So you need to confess and repent. And in your confession and repentance, the call is not to go make more peace. The call is to remember you're poor in spirit. You have no business gossiping and slandering. You gotta mourn your sin. And in your meekness, although you could say something, although you could be passive, although you could be power hungry, you are not, and you pursue peace instead. For some of us this morning, it's within our own marriages that we need to pursue reconciliation. scared to death that think to think for you in 20 or 30 years you're sleeping in separate bedrooms. Yeah, married on paper, but not reconciled to each other. And maybe your step into reconciliation is first, you gotta be made right with God. That husband will not complete you. That wife will not complete you. But when you find your contentment and peace in the Father, you got a shot. But I wonder how many of us here today have actually never been reconciled to God. And so what's at war within us is this strife of trying to earn and please a father who, listen to me, while you were yet a sinner, he died for you. There's nothing you could do to make him love you more. There's nothing you could do to coerce him into reconciling with you. He's already done the work. Be reconciled to God. That, that brokenness you feel is your sin in the way but he's paid for it. He came and he made a way. Let him bring you back through your belief that his death on the cross finished the job. You've been made right again. You've been made pure to be brought back into relationship with him. Would you believe that this morning? And I just wonder how many of us today don't need to go anywhere except to make a phone call or stop by someone's house today. God, you are good and you're great and you're powerful, but even in your power and your might, you never forced reconciliation upon us. It was an invitation you placed at our feet. By your grace, you've invited us back into relationship with you. And you did it by making yourself present in the midst of the dirt and grime in our lives. So God, may we be your children. May we look like you. Where we need to engage, God, help us to engage. Where we need to back off and quit being so power hungry, God, help us to. If we're trying to manipulate reconciliation, God, remind us, con, uh, convict us of it. 
that we might be settled in you, that we're not dependent upon somebody else liking us because we've got all we need in you. For those like me who had grown passive, give us strength to engage in a way that brings about flourishing today. May we be known as people who look just like our Father in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.